Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, Liquidware, and Policy Pack Software. If you enjoy the podcast each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. The BBC reported this week that the creator of the mouse, Mr. Bill English, passed away at the age of 91 from respiratory failure. Bill was born in Kentucky in 1929 and he built the first mouse in 1963 using an idea put forward by his colleague Doug Engelbart while the pair were working on early computing at Stanford Research Institute. The mouse would then become commonplace about two decades later when personal home computers became more popular. The idea was Mr. Engelbart's, which he described as only being brief notes but the creation was all down to Bill English. His first version was a wooden block with a single button and underneath two rolling wheels at 90 degree angles that would record vertical and sideways movement. About the creation, Mr. English told the Computer History Museum, quote, we were working on text editing. The goal was a device that would be able to select characters and words, end quote. And when it was demoed in 1968, it was titled The Mother of All Demos. Asked decades later if it was the seminal moment in modern computing, Mr. English replied, I wouldn't dispute that. Sadly, as English explained, neither man became very wealthy from the invention. Quote, The only money Doug ever got from it was $50,000 license from Xerox when Xerox Park started using the mouse, end quote. The device was also adopted by Apple for its early personal computer, the Lisa, but Apple never paid any money from it, and it took off from there, he said. In 1971, he replaced the wheels on his first mouse design with a rolling ball. That design then became familiar to most end users over the next few decades. He also played a part in the creation of the graphical user interface. Not too bad of a legacy to leave behind. VMware Horizon version 8 has been released, and it's got a pretty interesting narrative or draw. The release notes start by explaining the COVID reality we live in and the need to work from home and the situation organizations have found themselves in when needing to scale quickly, potentially not having any capacity in their own data center to scale, or maybe having it but not being able to ramp up virtual desktops quick enough. VMware claimed this release is a big help for such a use case with new hybrid public cloud delivery options with the announcement of support for Google Cloud and VMware Cloud on Dell EMC as well as Azure VMware Solution which is still in preview. And not to be confused, there is already support for Azure. This is specifically mentioning Azure VMware Solution. With this release, there are enhancements for instant clones to make them faster and provide greater simplicity through the management UI. There's also been enhancements to the REST APIs for greater automation purposes. Optimization packs are available for Zoom and WebEx, and now there's also enhanced audio and video experience and support for Microsoft Teams. VMware state that Horizon A will provide IT with new capabilities and deployment options to ensure that end users can work anytime, anywhere, on any device. 
Granted, that's a very tired old tagline, <laughs> but it still is relevant today due to the situation we find ourselves in. They also state that leveraging VMware's virtualization heritage and a trusted digital foundation, Horizon delivers unique benefits with enterprise-grade management capabilities that strengthen security and simplify day-two operations, further enabling organizations into the future. And certainly, I think if you've been following the podcast, you'll have heard me mention some of the acquisitions that VMware has made, particularly in the security space, that could only bolster their claims that they just made in that statement. So it'll be interesting to see how Horizon continues to evolve, particularly from a security standpoint. In what I find to be a really bizarre story, Microsoft has been linked with an acquisition of of popular social media app TikTok. If you've been following the news over the last few weeks, you'll be aware of allegations against the TikTok app for harvesting users' private data. Last weekend, the President of the United States stated that the U.S. government was going to ban TikTok in the U.S. Microsoft have since released a statement with CEO Satya Nadella confirming that he has spoken with the President about the acquisition, stating the acquisition will only go ahead after a complete security review and providing proper economic benefits to the United States, including the United States Treasury. And because it's currently bizarro world, more recently some security experts have been claiming that the original allegations against TikTok were actually bogus to begin with. The Microsoft statement suggests they will only own and operate the service in the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Now that's pretty interesting because it's now being reported by many outlets that it's going to be the global operations except for in China. So that would include Europe too. In Microsoft's statement, they say that they may invite other American investors to participate on a minority basis in the purchase. Among other measures, Microsoft say they will ensure that all private data of TikTok American users is transferred to and remains in the United States. To the extent that any such data is currently stored or backed up outside of the United States, Microsoft would ensure that the data is deleted from servers outside the country after it is transferred. And that's really interesting too because TikTok themselves, I believe, have stated that U.S. customers' data is already being stored in data centers in the United States and that they have data centers currently in the United States and Singapore. And just this week, they announced that they're setting up a data center in Dublin, Ireland, which came actually just before reports that Microsoft were set to buy the business, not just in the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, but also for countries like India and those in Europe. To me, a big red flag of the potential acquisition was the fact that they were not also acquiring the European market where data compliance is more stringent. But if Microsoft were to buy TikTok, Microsoft have already committed to following California's more stringent data compliance regulations, or at least more stringent than those in other U.S. states. It's pretty interesting that Microsoft is stepping up to buy them, and now it's said that Microsoft has asked for like 45 days in order to complete the acquisition to keep TikTok operating in the United States. So I guess we're going to have to follow this story over the next month and a half. On last week's episode of the podcast, I covered the story about some of Garmin's products getting disrupted by a ransomware attack and that services were returning for customers at that time. Now, at that time, there was no information on whether or not Garmin had paid the ransom. 
BleepingComputer.com have confirmed this week that Garmin has received the decryption key to recover their files encrypted in the wasted locker ransomware attack. Now, there is no definitive proof that the ransom was paid in order to get the decryptor, but it was received, so... I mean, 2 plus 2 equals 4. I'll let you make your own mind up on that. Bleeping Computer have also shared a signal number for confidential contact and have shared many other details in the article, including pictures showing encrypted Garmin files and a demo of how the decrypt works. In more ransomware news, Reuters reported that travel management firm CWT paid $4.5 million this week to hackers who stole reams of sensitive corporate files and said they had knocked 30,000 computers offline. The attacker claimed to have infected 30,000, but the company have stated the number actually infected was considerably less than this. Unlike the Garmin story, where there was no definitive proof of a ransom being paid, in this story, transcripts of communications between the organization and the attackers were kept and published online. The attacker initially requested $10 million in Bitcoin, but ended up accepting $4.5 million instead. In a ransom note left on an infected CWT computers, of which screenshots were posted online, the hackers claimed to have stolen 2 terabytes of files, including financial reports, security documents, and employees' personal data, such as email addresses and salary information. I won't go through the messages in the transcript on this podcast, but I suggest you all look it up for yourself. It's very interesting to see the back and forth and how nonchalant it all seems. Remarkably, the attacker even gives security advice to the company to help protect them from future attacks. It was interesting to see a tip being given to use something like AppLocker. Personally, I recommend everyone check out my show sponsor, PolicyPack Software, and their Least Privilege Manager. That product allows you to get into a very low level, which should ensure that if anything gets through and penetrates the network layer or even gets into your organization by a phishing campaign or an email. If someone tries to open it up, least privileged managers should take care of things and prevent it from being able to execute. So this next one could be a tip of the week, but it's so relevant to these stories that I feel it should be mentioned now. Duff22B on Twitter shared some simple tips about tidying up your default Windows endpoint firewall at home. He says just type wf.msc at the start menu and sort all by enabled. And then just disable some of the apps to be safe like LLMNR, MDNS, Sticky Note, Calculator, and those sorts of apps that like do they really need connectivity at your house? Not very likely. Of course, a first step, sadly not just for home users but also for some enterprises that I've worked for, you should start by enabling your Windows firewall to begin with. Some have these other third-party firewalls and they just completely shut down and disable the Windows firewall. And while you're at it, enable UAC. I can't believe it's 2020 and places still disable that. This week, ZDNet reported that a hacker leaked passwords belonging to Pulse Secure VPN customers in plain text on an online form. It's believed the data breach was linked to a previously patched vulnerability. CVE-2019-11510. Importantly, customers should not only ensure they are up to date on their patches for the Pulse Secure VPN, they should also change passwords. The data that was compromised from the original vulnerability included IP addresses, VPN firmware versions, 
SSH keys, all local users and their password hashes, admin account details, usernames, and clear text passwords, plus VPN cookies. So if you patch but you didn't change passwords, time to get those passwords changed. BleepingComputer.com reported that about 20 gigs of sensitive data from Intel was leaked online, and it said that this was just the first dump with more dumps to come in the future. The person who obtained the data said they got it off a server that was part of a CDN that was not secure. That is, the server was not secure. The data reportedly contains things like Intel ME bring up guides and flash tooling plus samples for various platforms. Silicone FSP source code packages for various platforms, various Intel development and debugging tools, binaries for camera drivers, Intel mode for SpaceX, and many, many other goodies as well by the look of this list. Bleeping Computer also got a statement which reads, quote, We are investigating the situation. The information appears to come from the Intel Resource and Design Center which hosts information for use by our customers, partners, and other external parties who have registered for access. We believe an individual with access downloaded and shared this data. End quote. If you've been following the podcast for the last few months, you'll have heard me cover multiple stories about issues with printing on Windows 10. Patches were released to address the issue before, but caused other potentially more serious problems. A new patch has now been released, KB4568831, and this patch not only attempts to address the printing issues that some have encountered, it also patches LTE connectivity in Windows 10 version 2004 and problems with Bluetooth headsets too. There is a known issue with this patch too, however. Microsoft states that when using some apps such as Excel, users of the Microsoft Input Method Editor, or IME, for Chinese and Japanese might receive an error or the app might stop responding or close when attempting to drag using the mouse. So patch, 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 but also test, test, test. PCMag.co.uk have reported that CCleaner, which is owned by Avast, has been getting flagged by Windows Defender as a potentially unwanted application. It appears the crux of the issue is that the 14-day free trial comes bundled with some other Avast products, and this chaining of multiple applications is seen as being potentially unwanted. Microsoft suggested the option to install the Avast products is automatically checked in the installer. However, Avast disputes this, stating the user simply asked whether to accept or decline installing the antivirus products, not automatically opted in stating that the screenshots Microsoft have shared are outdated. To me, this makes it sound like they were indeed doing it at one time and changed course. I guess the good news here is that Microsoft are flagging this type of behavior, but they likely need to update their logic for this instance. In an interview with The Verge, details were provided around Chrome OS support for Windows applications using Parallels. It was oddly met with disappointment and criticism from some. Based on discussions online, it seems most would prefer a dual boot option to just boot into full Windows instead of having a virtualized Windows 10 on top of Chrome OS similar to Parallel's macOS product. It was clarified that they did indeed look at allowing dual boot of Windows 10, but the project for that was ended last year. 
I can see people's points about the downsides of this approach, but personally I find dual booting to be a pain in the arse too. For those very disappointed, it might be time to consider an alternative to Chrome OS because you just may not be that into that if you need Windows 10 that badly, or at least maybe look at the ability to get into a virtual Windows 10 some other way if you don't want it on the device running parallel. A quick timely reminder, Skype for Business Online will retire in 12 months. Make your move to Teams as soon as possible or to a different alternative that suits your needs. This week, Datrium sent a notification to their customers that they are announcing the end of availability of Datrium DVX effective immediately. Therefore, orders from new customers are no longer going to be accepted. They also state that the Datrium DVX hardware support will be limited to the existing hardware configurations. Firmware fixes cannot be offered if the components are past end of support by the third-party component hardware vendors. As expected with this type of announcement, they're giving the option to basically make one last purchase if you need to ramp up. And there's also a commitment to existing customers to continue support, at least for the time being. Probably doesn't come as a huge surprise because I think when I covered the announcement of the Daytream acquisition, I had pointed out that it seemed to focus primarily on the disaster recovery as a service. So it seems like they might be just carving off that piece for themselves. And then also subsequently just being able to put a competitor out of business in one space of the market that they were competing in. So if you're a Daytream DVX customer today, then unfortunately it looks like you've probably got to look elsewhere and get away from Open Converge to probably Hyper Converge, something like Nutanix, EMC, Cisco Hyperflex, and what have you. Master Packager have released version 20.3, and with this version, the Master Wrapper features, main features are now accessible to everyone for free. This feature allows you to easily wrap MSI and EXE files into the PowerShell Application Deployment Toolkit. Master Packager do not actually sponsor me in any way. I just, I cut my teeth in application packaging and this product is free and awesome. So with any new release, I share that on this podcast. I hope you appreciate it too and you check it out for yourself. If you would use something like Instedit in the past, then it's time to move over to Master Packager because it's a better tool and they do keep it up to date and it's pretty awesome. You can do things that are like enterprise grade in the free tool like creating response transforms too. So I'm a big fan. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. This week, Tim Mangan released an awesome article in which he shares a publishing performance comparison between AbV, MSIX, and MSIX AppAttach. As you may expect, based on the technology, MSIX AppAttach and AbV perform much better than just straight up MSIX for publishing times. But the comparison of AbV and MSIX AppAttach to me is particularly interesting. I'm sorry to be a tease here, but I don't want to take clicks away and just tell you how they performed. I suggest that you just go over to Tim's website and I'll share a link to the article with this episode, which is episode 136, and you'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. 
Travis Roberts shared a short handy video on how to set up log analytics and monitor in Azure for WVD spring update. Since so many of us are trying to immerse ourselves in WVD recently, this one could be of interest to many. On the topic of analytics, Lee Jeffries shared a great post on generating automatic Excel graphs from Windows Performance Monitor captures. This could be really handy when measuring resource utilization on a desktop for a particular app or just general resource utilization for desktop sizing, particularly if you don't have a budget to spend on something like a product from the likes of Goliath, Liquidware, EG, ControlUp, and others. James Rankin posted the first in a series of posts called The Ultimate Guide to Windows Logon Time Optimization. The posts, as always, for James, appear that they'll be very detailed and James provides some very useful metrics from UberAgent to show proof of what he's suggesting and covering. And finally, Andrew Jimenez shared a cool picture of a smart magic mirror that he built using a Raspberry Pi device. I shared something like this on a previous podcast episode back in the first year of the show, and it's something I would love to try out for myself. And Andrew shared the resources that he used, which was magicmirror.builders. So if you're an IoT enthusiast and you're looking at a next project for a Raspberry Pi, this could be a cool one for you to look into. And with that, that's it for another week. Thank you all so much for listening.